Let me begin our time with a word of prayer. Well, God, as we come to your word, we just want you to speak to us and teach us, to humble us, to show us more of who you are and how we are to relate to you so that we can bring you honor and glory. Would you speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. I'm going to read a passage 73 through verse 80. 73 through verse 80. Listen to God's word. It says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me, according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight." Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. This is God's word. One of the most valuable Um, things that you can do when you approach a Bible passage or when you are reading a Bible text is ask yourself actively, what does this text teach me about who God is or what he is like? Because ultimately, if there is things in a text that is going to show you what you're to be like or what you're to do, you ought to have the proper motivation. It ought to come from the right place of your heart. You know as well as I do when... uh, We need motivation. It is not to be um, just because you have to or because I said so. That does not produce real obedience. It doesn't produce a a motivation of love and affection, of great delight. But if we are to do something with the wrong motivation, we might not do it at all. Or we might be begrudgingly or, or full of bitterness towards the task at hand. And so we want to know the proper motive, the proper motivation. What is going to motivate us to be this way, to live this way, to look this way and act this way? And the beautiful thing about Scripture is all of the being and doing and acting is always under the banner of grace and mercy. It's not that you must be, do, act this certain way so that you might Earn your way and weasel your way into God's kingdom. Uh, Scripture tells us very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 that that you are saved by grace alone and it is not by your own doing. It's not by your own works so that no one may boast. And so it's it's not that you are obeying or, or being a certain kind of person or acting in a certain way. It's not that that has got you into a good relationship with God. So when we think about being and doing and acting, we we think of it in light of the truth of the gospel, the the free offer of salvation, that that if you would confess, if you hear the message of Christ, you hear that you are indeed a sinner, you are broken, your relationship with God is such a tension that you are not welcome into his eternal kingdom because you've sinned against him. If that is your relationship with God and you realize it, 
and you come to the text or someone preaches the good, good news of the gospel to you that says, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Lay all of your garbage on him. Lay all of your sin on him. Say, God, you need to deal with it. But I can't do it. So in Christ, he takes all of your sin and all of your shame and your guilt and all of its legal demands and he takes it to the cross. And then he there dies in your place. When you trust in that, when you believe with all your heart and you give yourself to that, not clinging to a backup plan, not holding on to something else, but in true faith, in genuine trust, when you trust in Jesus with all of your life and your eternal uh, salvation or your eternal life, when you trust in Jesus that way, then through that renewed relationship with God, a repaired relationship with God, then he begins to transform you to want to be a certain way, to want to act and live a certain way, to want to do certain things, but not so that you can earn your way in. You've already realized that that was a gift that you can't pay for. You can't earn it again. And so you live a life then of gratitude, a life that is being transformed. Like, I want to be like God. And so that's why when we, when we do come across texts where there are things that are, are be, do, act, uh, we always must remember the gospel, that it is not we do these things so that God will love us. If you believe that God will love you more or God will love you less because of what you are now doing, uh, you don't understand grace. The, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that he's loved you with an everlasting, steadfast love. A love that will never fail. It will not fade towards you. It's a covenantal love towards you. So when you screw up, he still loves you. When you do brilliantly, he still loves you. And, and so don't think that God's love towards you is contingent upon your being, doing, and acting. But instead, we do that out of He's just transforming us. That's just what we're kind of becoming now supernaturally in a newness of self. But then also, we want to do it out of a life of gratitude. Because our life, we want to say, I want my life to, to be what it was supposed to be. I was supposed to be an ambassador for God, a reflection of God's glory. And so I'm going to do things and I'm going to act a certain way and I'm going to be a certain person so that people can look and see how God is at work in me and give him the praise and the glory that he deserves. And so even here in this passage, we see things that David is, is asking for, things that he wants to be, things that he wants to do, uh, things that he wants to um, accomplish. But yet we must always remember it in light of our relationship with God. It's not contingent upon these things. These things are fruits of our right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But... In all of that, the motivation matters. The motivation matters. And we're going to see that here as we go kind of verse by verse looking at mainly who God is and what he is like. Because out of that, David concludes that he ought to be something else. That maybe he's not or he needs to increasingly be something. And I hope that you and I can do that as we approach every Bible text. That we can see who God is and what we are like. And we say, God, like, just shape me, mold me. Like, because you are this, I want to be this. Or, or because you are that, I want to be something else. So here we see in verse 73, right at the top, we see that God is a creator. Your hands have made and fashioned me. I am not some random chance. 
I was not an accident. Anything that I have experienced in my life thus far and will experience is not just some uh, mistake. Instead, God Almighty, the one who we look to, He has made individually, uniquely, purposefully. He has made us and He has fashioned us to be who we are, unique as we are, with the different ailments that we have, with the different struggles that we have. With the different gifts and abilities that we have, God has made and fashioned us. He's the creator. He's the God who made us. And so when when David begins to realize that, when you and I realize that, what does David then say? At the second half of verse 73, he says, So give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. If you're the God who made me, I want to obey you. You're the God who fashioned me and you have, you have determined what my life might look like and it is good and it is purposeful. So I want to obey you so that I can have the fullest of that life. A life that is supposed to glorify you and be full of joy in you. Well, how am I going to do that? But by obeying you. And so because you've made me, I want to follow you. I want to reflect you. So give me understanding. Open my eyes. Enlighten me. So that I might learn your commandments. I want to know what you say is right and what you say is wrong. Because you've made me to live in a bounds and I want to keep it. God, you the creator, transform me. Second thing we notice is in verse 74 and 79 is that God is a God to be feared. Because he says that those who fear you, and then in 79, let those who fear you. And so there are people... It's supposed to be you and me who are God-fearers. We are supposed to be those who, who revere God, respect God, who tremble before the majesty of God's enthronement, His, His kingship over our lives, that we would tremble to even think that we might disappoint Him, to even think that we might step out of line with His kingdom or, or what He is planning to do in His kingdom. We don't want to be those people. And so... We want to be those who fear God because He is deserving of our reverence and our fear, our respect, our trembling before Him. God is worthy of fear. And so here it's, it's interesting in both of these verses, 74, 79, He's speaking of those people who fear God. It teaches us something about God. He is to be feared. But then also teaches us something about ourselves that We should be God-fearing people and that we are to be God-fearing people not alone, but in community. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. They shall turn to me, 79 says. They shall be companions. We looked at that last week, that you are to be companions and care for and serve and love brothers and sisters in Christ. That they, they should see me and rejoice. Here's the reality, is if you are not growing, if you are not living your life to please God, if you are uh, living in perpetual sin, if you are not repenting, if you are just doing your own thing and you say that you fear God, others who fear God, who see you, they will not rejoice. 
But we should be able to see one another, see what God is doing in and through you, see how you're being shaped and molded, see how you're being serving through the uniqueness that God made you and fashioned you to be, that we should be able to see one another, be with one another, and rejoice in what God has done individually and corporately together, that we would have rejoicing because of brothers or sisters in Christ. And here he says, I I, I do this, Verse 74, because I have hoped in your word. Again, something that we are to be ever increasing in is a hope in his word. A hope not based on chance or flip of a coin, but hope that is certain that will not put us to shame. Verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So two things you learn about God there. That his rules, the things that he has determined, uh, what he says is right and wrong, are righteous. They are always just. And and with perfect judgment, he has said such things. God never made a mistake. He wasn't uh, um, affected by some sort of anger uh, when he made a rule. You know, sometimes like parents do. If a child embarrasses us by something they do, whether it's a, a, you know, an anger issue or whatever, we set different rules because often... You know, we're just embarrassed by that. And so it's something in us. It's a selfishness in us. We're not concerned about our child learning how to cope or grow. We're learned about behavior control because it embarrasses us. Well, that's not why God set rules. That's not how God set rules. He set rules because uh, of what is good for us. And what's ultimately good for us is that we would glorify God and that uh, the fame of his name would spread to the nations because in God alone we are satisfied. We are content. And so he sets rules that are right that are good for us, that is good for humanity, if we all followed the rules of the Bible strictly, all of it, obviously this world would be a better place. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is the glory of God and, and, and just people coming and knowing Him as the righteous one and that His rules are right. But second there, we notice that in faithfulness He afflicted David. So in, in faithfulness, in love, in truth, it wasn't in just flippancy when something happens to him and David recognizes something as an affliction, um, that, that it was God in his faithfulness and his loving kindness towards him and his righteousness and his reverent, his, um, his ruling and his creative uh, power that there is where the affliction came and David says, it was in your faithfulness. God, you are faithful. You will never leave me. You will not leave me in this thing. If I've been afflicted, it's for a reason. And it's not that you've just forgotten about me. But no, God, indeed, I believe that you are faithful. And so when you believe truly that God is faithful and he's faithful to his word and he's faithful to his promise and he's faithful to you if you belong to him, then you can endure You can endure the affliction. You can endure a hard trial knowing that indeed God is faithful. David there says, I've been afflicted. But look at the next verse. He says, but let your steadfast love comfort me. So something he's seeking, he wants to, in the midst of his affliction, he wants to be comforted. And he knows it's from God who has a steadfast love, who has a covenantal love, a love that will not leave his bride. A promise that is that is made and a promise that will be kept that I will love you with an everlasting love not one that grows tired not one that wears out after time not one that loses its excitement 
but a love that is steadfast. It is firm. It is unshaking. So when I said earlier that God's love for you is not contingent upon what you have done or what you are doing, this is it. This steadfast love that we must look to and trust in, this is the kind of love that transforms and gives us comfort. It gives us comfort. And we know it and we learn it according to the promise that he gives, according to his word to his servant, his children, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, that he will be closer to us than a brother. We also learn about God in verse 77 that he is merciful. David asks him, let your mercy come to me. He is merciful. He is gracious. I love what David says. He says, let your mercy come to me that I may live. Recognizing that if it is not the mercy of God, if it is not the grace of God, that we are dead men. We will not live apart from the grace of God. Apart from his mercy towards us. That, and even think of the t- term of mercy. It just sounds like someone is, is weak and, and needs mercy. That's us. And it's true. We would be dead without his mercy because we know that the wages of sin is death. You and I sin every day. We have this record a mile long of our sin. And so without mercy, without undeserved grace, we would be dead. But here David says, let your mercy, God, you are mercy. You are merciful and let it come to me. Let me experience it. Let me know it afresh. Let your mercy come to me so that I may live. Not just live eternally, because by grace and mercy we are saved from the wages of our sin. Because Christ paid for the wages of our sin through his death and his being judged. But there we may live eternally, but we also may have life now and life abundant. When you are content in God and his mercy and his grace that is sufficient for you every day, it doesn't matter if you're afflicted. It doesn't matter if in your affliction he comforts you or not. Uh, David, uh, sorry, in, in uh, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he talks about an affliction that he had and he prayed that God would take it away, and he prayed three times, like, God, just heal me of this thing. Take this thing away from me. God's response to him, um, I love because God's response to him was, you don't need to take it away. The answer is no. I'm not going to take away your affliction. But he says, my grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so then Paul concludes, even if the affliction remains, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So let mercy come to me, that grace come to me, that grace that is enough, that grace that sustains enough for today, the mercy that is new every morning, let it come to me. And when we experience that and when we know that, when we delight in that, then we actually live, even if there's affliction. Then we are living, truly living, when we experience the mercy of God and we know it to be, to be true. Verse 78, he says, let the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. And here sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes when you see kind of the wickedness or sinfulness of man, if you just contrast it, you can see the beauty of God. God has never wronged us. And he's never lied. So here David said, you know, people have wronged me with falsehood, with lies. God will never wrong us and he will never 
lie, something to praise and adore God about. So opposite of humanity. And so then David says, I want to meditate on your precepts. I think that your words and your truth and your truthfulness is worth mauling over and and getting nourishment from. I'm going to meditate on your word. I'm going to learn about your faithfulness when I see the unfaithfulness of men all around me. When I see people lying all around me, I want to see your truth. I want to know your truth. Verse 79 again, as referred to, he says, Let those who fear you turn to me so that uh, they may know your statutes. So again, the the fear of God, the reverence of God, and when you fear and and, um, respect God in such a way, you want to know what he has said. Know his testimonies. Do you know his testimonies? So that when you are with those who fear God, you together know his testimonies. That's what you're doing together. You are encouraging one another and increasing knowledge of his testimonies. His testimonies, even that word there, I know other translations use all the different words in Psalm 119, but the idea of a testimony, right, it is a display of God and his truthfulness in and through us or what he has done. Let that be kind of the reflection of our lives that we would testify about God and his goodness. And I love verse 80 to end. He says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. You know, there are some things that if we follow someone's rules to the T, we can still be put to shame. That's never the case with God. When we obey God, even though others might make fun of us, they, they might derail us, they might, it might even end put us in jail. It, you know, it might have us martyred at the end. Uh, we would never be ashamed. Never be ashamed. That's why Paul says in, in Romans, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because we realize what the gospel is. We realize what this, his statutes are, what his word is. It, is. it is truth and it is the power to save. And there is nothing ever to be ashamed of when a sinner deserving of death is made new. A sinner with a mile-long list of sins is forgiven. There's never anything to be ashamed of. What's shameful is when someone wants to hold on to their sin and thinks that they can handle it on their own, there's much shame. And there's much uh, to be grieved in that moment. But here he says, I'll never be put to shame when my, heart, when my heart is blameless in your statutes. Again, this is one of those things that you realize if you are honest with yourself that you're not blameless in his statutes. That's why David's praying, may my heart be blameless. What's amazing is that he's asking God. He's asking God, like, Make my heart blameless. Like, I'm dependent on you for this. I'm dependent on your statutes. I'm dependent on your word, on your, on your rules, on, on the very thing that, that 2 Timothy 3 tells us is the word of God is, is breathed out and it is useful for our training and correction and our righteousness, right? This is the very word. And so we want to be blameless in the word. We want to follow his word because also, again, it gives us the assurance that we belong to Jesus. He says, you know, if those are my disciples, hear my word and keep it. And so we just want to be those people. But again, realizing the motivation is not so that we can, you know, make sure that we've earned our spot in heaven. No way. We realize based on who God is and what he is like, that God is our creator and he's made us to be a specific way with a great purpose in mind, that he is a God to be revered as a great high king, that he is a God who is righteous and right in every way. He's a God who is faithful to his people. 
A God who has a love for you that is never wavering. This is a God who is merciful when you screw up. God is so gracious. This is a God who has a law that is perfect. A law that is worthy of our meditation and chewing on. This is our great God. And so we want to love Him and obey Him because He's been good to us. It's quite simple. It's simple. Psalm 119 is such a simple um, chapter of the Bible. It's the longest chapter of the Bible, but it's so simple. You could read through this, understand it on your own, apply it on your own, even to your own individual situations. You know, you think about, do you know or have you learned his commandments or not? Um, Do you hope in his word or not? Uh, Are you afflicted? Are you seeking his help? Are you being comforted in him and in his word? You know, are you content if you're not comforted? With his word, that that's your delight anyways, because you know his grace. Like, the, this is so simple to walk through and to, to apply to our own hearts. But the joy of it is that we can come and, and with David, kind of meditate on who God is and what he's like. And then what we want to be as a result. We want to be certain things. We want to act certain ways. And we want to do certain things because of who God is and what he's like. Do you know him? Do you know him? Or is he just some far off thought? Is he just a creator? Yeah, maybe you acknowledge verse 73, he created you. But do you fear him? Do you fear him? Do you, do you know him? Do you know his mercy? Do you know his comfort in your affliction? Do you know that he does allow affliction in your life? That it's him in control of that? That he's in charge of that? Do you meditate upon him? Do you commune with others who are going to help you to know his testimonies more, that you're going to testify to one another about what God has done, are you striving to obey and be blameless? Do you know this God? And is he transforming you? That's what we can take from a simple text like this, is just a real survey of things we already know about God, know to be true, but just good reminders and kind of application in our own personal life. When you ask it personally, am I being transformed in these ways? Uh, May God use this text in your life and in my life as we slow down, as we meditate upon it, and as we aim to be blameless for his glory, not for our eternal security. We look to grace in Christ for that. And so let us do that and trust that together. And let's pray. God, you are an amazing God. That word is so small. It is not enough. It's not sufficient. That you are awesome and you are great. Those are two smaller words. God, you made us. That alone should silence us. How did you make us? How did you form us? How did you form the world? Why did you make us? Why did you make us the way we are with different uh, ailments or with different gifts? Why? Oh God, things that we learn about you should humble us. But let it never just amaze us and leave us in the same spot, but let it change us as we interact with you in your word. God, we want to be transformed because we want to be like you. We want to reflect you. We want to encourage others to also trust in you as we have been transformed and find great delight in who you are and in what you have done. So God, we pray that even through this simple passage that you will be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.